Pretty camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th Retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. Never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front, these are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're talking about Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Arnie. And Stuart. Where we last left off, Jason was not in the last movie. Interesting, considering he is the main villain of the series. It was Roy. <laughs> Go Roy. <laughs> and so someone finally clicked on, you know what, we need to bring him back. And while we're at it, we need Horshack. So why don't we get right into it. The movie starts off with Tommy, who's played by a completely different actor, resurrecting Jason by the magic of lightning and the magic of Horshack. <laughs> and I'm, I'm surprised that Horshack was why even in this. Why are you picking on Ron Palillo TV's Horshack? Because I don't even know Ron Pol- – isn't he the guy who does the uh, – the- No, that's Ron Popeil. Uh, exactly. It's like the pocket fisherman. Anyway, <laughs> no, I just thought it was really cool. And I loved his line. He had a good line reading, though. He actually had a funny line, which is fine. But I loved his heart getting ripped out. The point I'm trying to make is it starts off in a campy kind of setting, kind of sets a tone for the whole thing. And I felt the whole movie just went off like a shot after that. You know, when watching that scene with Ron Palillo, TV's horror shack <laughs> – I couldn't help but wonder if Ron Palillo is perhaps a religious person, as his character never curses, and he just says things like, oh, geez. And, you know, I wonder if he brought with him a set of baggage to the set. (laughs) And I really am disappointed that it was supposed to be Dudley, who played Reggie in part five, Oh, but his dad wouldn't let him be killed. Is that right? Yes. And so they had to bring in a new loon. Played by Ron Palillo, TV's Horshack. They went back to the sitcom well. Yes. And <laughs> found someone else who wasn't um, working. Okay, so... Isn't it amazing how he looks exactly the same as he did on he Welcome Back, older. Cotter? He just looked older. I have, I have to make a confession. I never watched Cotter, really. No. I didn't, I didn't even recognize that that was somebody to recognize. <laughs> I'm really happy that he was in it, though. It was kind of fun to see him, and I'm, I wish him the best. Anyway... <laughs> Let's get in the crux of this movie. For me, this movie was really a very campy, not very menacing movie. It seemed to me Jason was more of a punchline in this one than actually a menacing character, which I found was an interesting take on the whole the whole movie. So I'm going to put it out to you guys. Do you have any suspicions or theories on why they went in that direction? Right after that scene with Horshack, they have the James Bond tribute, which is fantastically funny. But why would they go in this direction at this point in the series? I have, I do have a theory about that, okay. and I think it was probably the right choice. I think that once you're making a part six of something, it's gone beyond what you could do creatively with it. It's sort of passed on into pop culture, as it were. I have an actual kind of personal connection with this movie. I have vivid memories of seeing this for the first time because I had kids, and it was about kids 
and for the first time there are kids in the campground yes. and I was allowed to see this movie when I was that age and I had never seen a Friday the 13th movie before that and I totally connected to it and I think they knew that their primary audience was going to be on video and was under the age of 18 and couldn't go see it in the theater. That's what I actually believe. It actually was a movie made for kids who weren't old enough to see it. Interesting. I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with that, but it is certainly one of the tamer movies in that regard. There's no nudity in this one. There's sexual content, as they would put it on today's television shows, (laughs) but there was no nudity. There was... A surprising lack of blood. There were kids in it. But I think that overall it's just part five tried to be so super serious. Yeah. And it didn't work. When we were talking about part five, we were laughing at it anyway, talking about burritos, you know, all of that. So I think that if we're going to be laughing at the movie anyway, it's always better to be laughed with than laughed at. And so maybe they tried to react a little bit to that. Could you have really made a scary Jason at this point in a part six? You know what I mean? It's He's established who he is and what he's going to do. They're raising him from the dead, literally. <laughs> the strikes by lightning. I mean, I really felt like they just conceded. The director conceded the idea that this was going to be beyond something that you could make scary. And I think he was right. I think it was absolutely the right decision to go in this route. As much as I wanted, as a kid, for it to be scarier, I think I was even prepared for it to be more intense. But that was because of the kid I was and the things I was watching. But I totally ate this one up. And I actually, I remembered something watching it that I had totally forgotten. But as soon as I saw this movie, I went and wrote a sequel. I went to my, my, my personal computer, the first one in the household, and I typed out a sequel to it that it was, of course, going to star me. <laughs> Did you survive? You know what? We'll talk about it when we get to part seven because my <laughs> part seven actually has eerie parallels to the one that actually Were you was made. I think, they, I, think they, I, I think they ripped me off. I think I could probably sue, but you know, we'll get there on next next podcast. What's interesting about this movie for me was there's actually a character in the movie I was rooting for not to die, and that was the father, the police chief. Now, I'm not saying he was the greatest performance or the greatest character ever written the film, but I really got behind this guy, and I really felt, oh, please don't kill the policeman. Please don't kill the policeman. And then they, how they killed him later on was just brutal. And I just really wanted this guy to survive it. And that's really weird when you're watching a horror movie that you want the people to survive, but I did. You know what I found interesting about part six is there's a horror movie cliche that the Friday the 13th movies have completely avoided until part six. And that's the conceit of the child being smarter than the parent. Pretty much Friday the 13th has existed in a world without parents. There's been no adults. Steve Christie was off having coffee all afternoon. And in part two, they were all just 20-somethings and so on. Corey Feldman's mom was in it. And she was quickly offed before anything was known. The conceit is that the child says, Mom, Dad, whoever you are, authority figure, there's this killer, and he's going to come after us. And the parent figure goes, shut up, (laughs) we don't believe you. And that is the conceit. It is in all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Freddy Krueger's killing me in my dream. Take some drugs. You know, it's that conceit that the Friday the 13th had never had until this movie mm-hmm. with the daughter and the sheriff. Right. And- well, you just you just named it there, Arnie. This movie came out in 1986, about mm, 13, 14 months after the first Nightmare on Elm Street. 
and they were feeling the heat of it. I'm convinced that, that they started modeling the series after those movies at well, this point. You can't blame the comedy on Nightmare on Elm Street. I have a feeling that's where you want to go with that. No, no, that's not where I'm going with <laughs> because... that. I'm going with the idea. No, no, the comedy will come later because that's Nightmare 3 was the one that really introduced that. And that was 87. Right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the idea that you, you're just talking about, which is that there, there's this mythology now. Everyone on screen knows about the Jason campfire tale. They all talk about it. Do you think it's real? Our parents told us this story. Is it true? Well, that's just like the Freddy Krueger story. If you, if you remember in Elm Street, all the teenage kids were aware that there was once this child butcherer that their parents ganged up and killed. Same thing. I think that they saw the success of Nightmare on Elm Street and were feeling the heat of it. And when we get to part seven, they really rip off the Nightmare on Elm Street. All right. So we have Tommy back, a different actor. Again. And a completely different character. He really didn't seem all that screwed up like he was in five. He actually seemed very, he wasn't laconic. He was actually a morning at the mouth. Like he wouldn't shut the hell up. And he was very charming to Megan, which blew my mind. Oh, she was just dating him to piss off daddy. Well, it would have only been better if he was black. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I just found it was interesting that, yes, they went a whole different direction in this movie, but then why have Tommy be the character? Because it's a whole different character. Why not just bring another person in? Well, I do feel like they got it right. Um, I, I, would, I would make the argument um, that this probably is the best written episode in the series so far, and possibly in the whole series. I feel like the writing, while certainly nothing you would want to give a statue to, is sort of solved some of the problems that were inherent with the series all along. And one of them being is that there was no one to root for. Finally, in this movie, we're given a hero. And they modeled it after this character that we've never known how to feel about up until this point. You know, when it was played by Corey Feldman in the fourth movie, he was sort of this weird kid who was kind of like the smart, hip, cool, not cool kid, but like someone you feel like was smarter. And then towards the end, they made, they made it seem like, well, actually, he's just crazy and snapped. In the fifth one, you don't even know if he's the killer or not. So in this one, they finally said, okay, he is the hero of this story, and we're going to model him as the hero fighting Jason, and they're, it's a duel of equals. It's unfortunate they didn't get a better actor. This is probably the worst actor to play Tommy, I think, of the three films. <laughs> this guy is bad. Yeah. yeah, he's bad, but I feel like it was the best writing of Tommy that we've seen. It also, to me, seems to serve a dual purpose. First of all, You've had Tommy in the last two movies, and Tommy is the one who killed Jason. If you're approaching the script, and you're looking at having a character, Tommy killed Jason. So it would make sense to have him also involved in the resurrection. By the same token, part five had Tommy in it, and was so poorly done that this is almost like, forget part five. Part five didn't happen, there is no Roy. And here's Tommy now. He's coming from a mental institution, but at the end of four, Tommy's clearly fucked in the head. So the fact that Tommy's in a mental institution, you don't need part five to tell you that. It's almost like you could bridge the gap from four to six cleanly without ever having part five in between and still have the Tommy character. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you didn't have to have it be Tommy. You could have just had a couple of drunken high teenagers, but then you don't have, like Stuart said, the hero. If a couple of people were just grave robbing for the sake of digging up Jason, who they'd heard about at the campfire, mm -hmm. then you don't have anyone to stop Jason. Right. Except for the last surviving girl again. 
Right. You know, another thing I want to compliment about the writing, too, we keep talking about the grave digging scene. I think you can compliment that the opening of this movie is the first time that we have not had a very protracted clips reel of the previous movies. It is like they wanted us to forget part five because they don't show a clip reel of everything to catch us up to speed with what happened to Tommy in the mental institution. Normally, there's about five minutes at the beginning of the movie where they're just showing you the killings and, and the goings on of the previous movie. And in here, they establish all of that just using the characters, just basic, you know, he's driving a truck, it's speeding along, it pans back, and we see the hockey mask and a can of lighter fluid, and we know what he's going to do. The in Horshack says something about, they're going to kill us when we go back to the mental institution. We now know who these characters are and what they're going to do. Don't even think about going back and paying attention to anything else that happened in part five. You're up to speed. What I found interesting about the opening is here's Jason's resurrection by lightning. I mean, it's very Frankensteinian, if that's even a word. It, it should be. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> and it's so quick. They don't spend any time with it. I mean, I'm thinking back to part two, where there's 15 minutes before the opening credits and long protracted ending of part one where Alice bites it. Here, they're at the graveyard. They're digging up the grave. He's grabbing metal posts. He's stabbing Jason. Jason's up. Horshack's dead. Credits roll. It moved along much faster than I thought. I guess a director who was more inclined to try for the horrific aspects mm. may have drawn it out for suspense a little bit more. Here, there's a little bit of it because you see Jason's eye open. He lost his other eye in part four, I guess. But his eye was, should be decomposing at that point. He has a brand new spanking new eye. The lightning generated an eyeball into his skull because if you look at the actual skull of Jason before he gets resurrected, he had no eyeballs. He had nothing there. It was a big gaping hole. You didn't notice that? I didn't notice that, yeah. but it's, it's, are you it's, sure it was the same eye? Because he did lose his left eye with the machete. I'm, I'm almost positive it's his right eye. And then the, the eye opened. I'm like, oh, the lightning spontaneously generated an eyeball. It's I, amazing I, what you can do to zombies with lightning. I also said to myself, he's being resurrected by a lightning bolt. I shouldn't worry that he generates an eyeball. <laughs> that is, I think that is the way to conclude that. Yeah, yeah. So if, I, I if we're on. going to accept the premise that someone can come back from the dead with being struck by lightning, yes. then there it goes. You know, it's very effective the way it was done, just to, to put it is with the with the maggots that close to his eyeball and it opening. I actually thought it was, it was pretty effective for being <laughs> such a silly scene. But. I remember that from the trailer. And Stuart, you and I knew each other as kids. I remember the summer of 86 when this came out, seeing this trailer, and this was one year before I would jump both feet into horror, and I was so, like, attracted to this movie for the decomposing and the maggots and the grossness, and you'd see that eye on the trailer, and I'm like, ooh, do I really want to go there, and... I, yeah, you thought you thought it really did look like it was going to be a movie for you. And that, and again, I would say they were marketing to us. They couldn't do it because it was an R-rated movie. But they knew that every kid on the schoolyard wanted to see Friday the 13th, had seen bits of it on cable. And I feel like they tailor-made a movie for that young horror fan. The Joe Camel of horror? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Now... Finally, we've argued about Jason's past. Did he die in the lake? Did he drown? Is he undead? Here we finally have zombie Jason. I think that before he was the crazy mountain man, as we said, now he is the walking dead. Mm -hmm. Does that change the series? I don't think it did. Does it add a mystical element 
that would pave the way for things to follow in future movies. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. You said mystical element. I mean, now we, we're dealing with, although the guy was hard to kill and he came back, they actually acknowledge 100% gung-ho right here. We're going to use magic to bring back our character, and therefore he absolutely is a, a magic that they'll use loosely. They're finding a convention to bring him back to life, and they're going to keep having to do that now. And so it does add this whole otherworldly thing to it. Yeah, I, th I think it was a good creative decision. I mean, I feel like with this one, they really sort of just finished it. You know, there was a lot of things kind of floating around that, about the series that were inconclusive, how you felt about certain characters or, or what it was about. And this one, they said, you know what? This movie is just about our love of Jason, and let's bring him back and make him the focal point. And we know that he's an unstoppable force and a source of, of a dark comedy. You know, and I feel like that was the correct decision. This is probably, in my opinion, the best of the whole series for that reason. They knew what they were making, and they made it well. I'd have to agree with that for the most part in that they set out to do a certain task and make this movie a certain kind of movie, and they succeeded in that 100%. And even if it's like a kid's movie or a family movie, if you know it's a cheesy, stupid movie made for kids, if they go into it and they do it really, really well, you can't help but find it charming and well done in a good movie. Same thing here. They knew what kind of movie they were making, and they did it. I have to agree. I thought it was overall one of the more enjoyable watches we've watched so far. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but I'm saying it is certainly more of the more watchable of these movies. Although I did think it went a little over the top with the comedy for me, because I really liked the little bit more menace in it. But I see your point on why they did it, and they did make it work. Yeah, some of it, it felt like when Jason, for example, threw some projectile in somebody's head, and then the camera cuts to a dartboard as if they want us to say, bullseye, you know? It well, because he can't much. talk. So they did the James Bond homage in the beginning with him slicing the circle. They also give a shot of Jason after he kills somebody as if he would say the Connery line, but he can't because he can't speak. <laughs> I think you're right. It is is a way of making a character that's silent and, and imposing have a voice and, and be funny. Exactly. And they did do that kind of editing a lot. Jason did a take where he turned his head and things like that that really made it like the Schwarzenegger one-liner in, in Commando or whatever. And these yeah, like things. when he gets hit with the paintball on the chest, he just stops and looks down at his outfit like he can't believe somebody shot a paintball at him. Exactly. And then he cuts their heads off, <laughs> which is what you should do to anyone who shoots you with a paintball, I believe. Uh, no, I mean, even if you're playing paintball, right. yeah, you still cut their Annoying head off. Annoying nerds aside, if they shoot you with a paintball, kill them. Now, Stuart mentioned earlier, there are children in jeopardy here. Now, previously, the only child we had was little Corey Feldman running around. And Dudley. And Dudley. Now we've got a whole camp full of kids. And it took six installments for the camp to get kids. Yep. Did that work for you? Did that add some of the fear? I know there were some good jokes, like when one of the kids turns to the other and goes, what were you going to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, the thing is, this movie was so campy, no pun intended. So it was really hard to really think the kids were any real sort of jeopardy. You know, if they had those kids in part four, yeah, it actually might have worked a little bit better to have the actual scariness of kids in jeopardy. These kids were in the movie, but they weren't really in jeopardy, dude. If the kids were in part four, I'd be more worried about them being around the bad influence of Crispin Glover. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They have more to fear from some of those weird camp counselors than they ever would from the hockey mask guy. <laughs> and there's one kid in particular that was fashioned after poltergeist. There's a little girl, and what's her name? Does anybody remember? Well, I thought that was the girl in the next one. Yeah, I, the girl in seven looks a lot like, La, like Carol Ann. Carol Ann. Well, that's true, too, but I, I got that from Nancy as well. That was her name. The, the girl who the, couldn't sleep. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's one girl who's sort of like the central focus for all the children. Yeah, she can't sleep. She's seen Jason. She thinks of him as the monster in the woods. No one believes her, as is established. I, I loved Poltergeist, so I was I was all about her and 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 watching her escape from the peril. Yeah, I think you knew that nothing was really going to happen to these kids, but they did play with it enough to make it satisfying. Now. What I want to know is the character of Tommy. He goes to burn Jason's ashes and just incinerate him at the beginning of the movie. Brings the gasoline and everything. He has a little bit of a flashback, goes crazy, starts stabbing him with the pole. That's understandable. He did kill your mom. But then after Jason has risen, then all of a sudden Tommy's like, we have to return him to the lake. Where did that come from? Did I miss something? The genesis of the return him to the lake? What happened to burn the fucker? <laughs> I loved Re- Return Him to the Lake. This was the first time that I felt like they had a solution for how to deal with this guy that actually had some kind of like closure to it. There was just something very novelistic about the idea of like he must return from where he came in order to finalize it. It, it feels right. Like any time, any other movie, it's like yeah, okay, stab him nine times. We all know he's going to get him up. It never felt final. The final chapter with the uh, Corey Feldman stabbing him eight times. I'm like, this isn't going to work. There's no reason to think that that's going to work. But there is something. I don't know. I felt it felt appropriate to me. I felt like that worked. I don't know where they came up with that they just pulled that out of air yes i don't think that was ever in any other installment but just from a screenwriting standpoint i think that was a good solution it has a sense of balance closure yes but he was going to dig him up to burn him is your point yeah instead of picking him up throwing him in the lake (laughs) so there's a big logic gap there until he was until he actually started moving again he didn't come up with the idea of oh let's drown him in the lake so well, I, I you know, there's point. something there's something inherently wrong with a guy that wants to dig. A, I mean, the guy was in the ground. It was actually him digging up and then sticking a very large metal rod into him that triggered the lightning to hit to bring the guy back to life. Yeah, really, like, all the killings are on Tommy's head. Yeah, honestly, it is. Yeah, he's like the Doctor Frankenstein character. He feels responsible. You guys did pick up the general store was called Karloff's, didn't you? No, yeah, no, there was definitely, and you know, Frankenstein has that whole relationship with the little girl as well. I mean, they definitely were trying to pattern it a little bit after a classic monster movie serial. Not too much. It's still a Friday Thirteenth movie. I remember when we were having our part three discussion, Stuart. You specifically said he is not Frankenstein. I will not feel pity for him. (laughs) Well, it's amazing what happens three chapters later. And you know what? They don't (laughs) ask us to feel pity. That they never do try to make Jason too sympathetic here. They know that we are with him anyway. At this point, he's the star of the movie, and and everything is sort of tailored for him. But you're right. I'm not sure why Tommy dug him up to burn him when, in fact, the solution is to send him back to the lake. But I will say this. This was also the first time that I realized, wow, if you go down in a lake, just no one ever goes down for you. Like, (laughs) you know, like no one's going to drain that lake. There's no search. These people just do not believe. It's like, oh, he's gone, you know. (laughs) And it's not a very deep lake. It really, that's what I'm saying. Anybody with like a snorkel could probably go down and get the body. But they're just going to leave it there. Oh, it's gone, you know. Now. We've talked in our previous installments about the sin of that deserves death. That kids have sex, they die. Kids do drugs, they die. I guess in this movie, is it saying if you're a yuppie out on a team building paintball retreat, you deserve death? 
That I had a like a police academy flashback there. Yep. That was also a popular series that was probably on part six by that point. That was them throwing a little nod to police academy, or at least that's what it felt like to me. Yeah, you're right, because you got, like, the Tackleberry guy who's all, like, military, and then you've got the nerdy guy, and then you've mm-hmm. got the woman who shouldn't be as good with guns as she is. Yeah. It was actually, and I, I actually know this, in 86, they were on part three of Police oh. Academy, and that's from my other Now Playing series of the Now Playing <laughs> retrospective on Police Academy coming soon. I can't wait for Mission to Moscow. Yes, I mean, <laughs> I'm so proud to have actually seen all of those movies. And more than once. But yes, I felt the same thing. And I felt their sin was being over the top comic characters. <laughs> because, you know, there's they only. They were gonna be, badly written and yes, deserve to die. There's only going to be one top banana in this movie, and that's going to be Jason. And no one's going to upstage him with their comedy antics. So, and with them, this body count really did went high. I counted, and it was like 18 or 19 kills. I mean, I think this was close to a record. There were quite a few when you count, like, the motorcyclists and the gravedigger and Horseshack. Mm-hmm. And, and all the counselors. All the cops. Yeah. The cops. Oh, yeah, the cops. Yeah, he didn't want to. He was, he was all, like, Schwarzenegger or Rambo at the end there, killing him left and right. He, mm-hmm. got, he got that one with that great headshot, and he fell in the boat. That was mm-hmm. a nice shot. Yeah, when he took down the sheriff, I thought that was effective. He kind of, like, folded him up like he origami. He bent him backwards. It was really, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> Horrible death. At no point did the sheriff yell, he's killing me, he's killing me. <laughs> How are we to know? (laughs) You know another thing that I loved about this movie, and this is another flashback that I had. I loved the theme song. Alice Cooper does all the the rock, scary rock songs in this movie. And I actually took a cassette recorder and held it up to the TV and recorded the end theme and, like, would play it. What what, what was it called? It was um, back, the man behind the mask. Like, when that came on, I was like, I was like, I know these lyrics. I'm like, when you're at the lake, and, and then like my head started bombing. I'm like, I know this. And then I'm like, oh, that's right. I taped this and went around with my Walkman and played a cruddy bootleg of this, thinking about how I was going to write part seven. You know, I think this is where Prince got the idea for Batman to do all the songs. <laughs> I loved that they used Alice Cooper. I thought it was a perfect person to do the songs for it. And when they had it throughout the movie, I turned to my wife who was watching with me, and I said, that's Alice Cooper. I think they got mm-hmm. Alice Cooper for this. And at the end, they had a great theme song. I agree. I think Alice Cooper was awesome for this. Mm-hmm. And he did a Teenage Frankenstein to continue the Frankenstein theme. That that's was a horrible song. song. I got it confused with Feed My Frankenstein yeah. to continue. I, why didn't they use Feed My Frankenstein? I, I, don't, I don't get that. He had already had a Frankenstein song. He didn't need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't he do Teenage Werewolf or something else out of the Universal Backlot? <laughs> he, he, I think he kept that going for a while. That was sort of his own raison d'etre, but it was a good choice. And and the only song of his that isn't in there I felt like should have been cut. There was like, Go Animal. Do you remember this one? Like when it wasn't Alice, I was just like, no, no, no. You can't have like the fake hair metal band. You got to go with an Alice tune. Yeah, this was the first one to really incorporate the modern style of music rather than just have the score or some really bad temp tracks or something like what they were dancing to in part four. Mm-hmm. It really started to have that hair metal look, that Bon Jovi look, the girl's hair is being teased. Yes. And oh, and that one jacket. guy, that one guy with the cut open pants. Oh, that, yes. yeah. yeah, the ripped jeans. That was straight out of Def Leppard. Yeah. And I think the uh, Alice Cooper thing, Around this time, I believe the soundtrack album became started becoming really huge because they had 84, they had Beverly Hills Cop and Footloose, and they had Flashdance the year before that. 
and then Top Gun was the same year. But the soundtrack album that goes along with the movie was huge, so they must have jumped on that bandwagon getting Alice, right? You're missing it. MTV. Oh, of course. Marketing yeah. to the new generation right. through the power of music video. You're absolutely right. I didn't. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm willing to bet there was a music video there for was. me. I never saw it, but I, I'm, I'm willing to bet there's like Alice singing like at the lake, and then they would intersperse shots from the movie, so you think Jason was in the video, well, but no one dying in those yeah. only people screaming or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or like sometimes they had awful uh, movie videos, and they only had like two or three shots, or didn't have any actual plot points, and you just saw people right. walking into a door. Or things like that, mm-hmm. like which really were lame shots, but coordinated with the movie. Yeah, and I'm 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 willing to bet that like even like they unmasked Jason at the end, and it's Alice Cooper because they always love to do that. Kind yes. of thing yeah, yes. and I bet there were some horses in it, just because all MTV videos in '86 had some horses. <laughs> That's a bold statement, my friend. <laughs> wow, yeah. You know, well, one YouTube, one other thing I'd like to add. I thought it was a nice touch about the series. It isn't Crystal Lake. the The town has actually tried to do a reimage. They yeah, recognize the campaign. And... Yes, they recognize that they are Camp Blood to the world. Everyone knows that when you go to Crystal Lake, you're going to be slaughtered by a zombie butcher. And so they they call it what Forest Green. I think Forest it was. Green. I thought that was funny. I thought that was cool. I guess the last thing I have to say is. Hey, go Tony Goldwyn. Way to break into the movies. Oh, yeah, right. I, I just, I, 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 yeah. Tony Goldwyn. You have no idea who that is, do you? I'm lost. Ghost. He's, uh, he's in Ghost. He was oh, that's Ghost. right, that guy. I didn't know his yeah. name, but I did go, that's the dude from Ghost. Yeah, he's the, the bad guy. Tarzan in the Disney movie. Yeah, Tony Goldwyn. Good for him. We're like, oh, Tony Goldwyn's going to get it. Tony, stay in the car. Tony, stay in the car. There's always been a VW bug in these movies. <laughs> have you noticed that? Yeah, he comes rolling up with this girl in a VW bug. Maybe they only have a couple cars to rent for this thing. I just thought and Jason hated hippies. A VW, like an actual bug, like Herbie? <laughs> yeah. Maybe Herbie was available one. to be used. Uh, Disney wouldn't lend Herbie out, so they had to use another kind of bug. <laughs> <laughs> well, did anyone else feel, though, that this movie... Earlier, you were talking about the death of the kill, like he was Arnold and Sylvester. I thought this had kind of an action movie feel. We got car chases, we've got exploding RVs. This is the one with the RV when he's yeah the in the back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The car chase felt totally, totally excessive, and just what? Where was this coming from? Never had the series ever thought to have a car, and not a car chase like we're driving away from Jason. A car chase of just we're two teenagers on the run from the cops, and she literally like. Tommy is sort of like the standoffish one, and she's like the sexually aggressive one, and she shoves him between her legs, and she's speeding along, and I'm just like, wow, this is like some kind of, you're right, I guess like an 80s action movie. And then one too many insert shots of the crotch, of the girl's crotch. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, one point of view. too many. They, yeah. had, they had their appropriate one, like, you know, his point of view, what he's looking at, but then they did it again and again. There's During the car chase, though, I could have swore like, they had an insert shot also of, it looked like Daylight. And one of the turns, and then, like, they shot it late at night, and they edited it that way. But it seemed to me like it was dark, then it was light, then it was dark. Oh, they used a day-for-night filter for sure. And it just really was obvious in one of the shots, but... Yeah, I remember that shot. I just just wanted to point that out because I'm thinking about it now. I hadn't thought of it until you specifically said Schwarzenegger's name, but I'm wondering if this was, like, Jason as Terminator because he's taking out the cops. Maybe. And then you've got the guy and the girl on the run, Mm -hmm. kind of like you have the Michael Bean and Linda Hamilton and Terminator. I didn't see that until you just said Schwarzenegger. Yeah. But... Now I'm kind of thinking, did they pull their influence from the hit movies? If this movie came out in 86, probably made in 85, Terminator was big in 84. Right. 
Sure. I feel like this series has always done that. It has always been a cannibal to a certain extent and taken whatever was trendy, starting with the first one, just ripping off Psycho and Halloween. They have always borrowed elements from whatever was popular to keep it going. Usually it's the character types. The kids are patterned after certain things. But you're right. I definitely, I didn't see that either, but you're right. It definitely, you definitely see Terminator in this. And uh, I would argue you see Poltergeist and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Tommy has martial arts training in the last movie. In this movie, he doesn't. It would have been really great if like, he actually pulled it out and actually had the fight because that also would have been a great Terminator thing because the Terminator wouldn't have gone down. You know, He keeps like, beating the crap out of Jason, but Jason keeps on getting back up or he doesn't fall down from being kicked or hit. It would have been kind of nice that if they were consistent a little bit with the character of Tommy for him to go all crazy on him and see if he can actually defeat him with his bare hands. But they didn't do that either. Maybe Tommy just knows that won't work. Jason gets shot. Jason gets hacked. Jason is a zombie, and only thing that will work is fire or water. Well, how about just consistent fire or water? Why don't they just be consistent a little bit and just have him try something or at least kick somebody? I'm willing to bet nobody in this one went back to look at part five for inspiration. <laughs> They're like, uh, you know what? Whatever we did there, we're just not going to. Jason lives. Roy doesn't, and we keep going. All right. All right. Roy does not get entered into the horror pantheon. No. He will get no uh, sideshow collectible. <laughs> <laughs> the end, did it work for you with all the fire on the water and everything? I thought that that actually looked kind of cheap at times. You could kind of tell the flames were a good 10 feet away from the You can actor. tell the chain was made of plastic. Did you see the chain? <laughs> it was so shiny, and I was like, that's plastic. Look at the way he's holding. That's no weight to that. But I thought the ending actually surprisingly to me, I was okay with it. He threw the chain around his neck and Jason got to jump out of the water again. And I didn't mind the ending. I didn't mind the flames. I didn't mind anything about that. I just, I figured if that's the plan to get rid of Jason, okay. And they did it. It worked. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of on the same boat. No pun intended. (laughs) Is that if you can't kill Jason, trapping him underwater is not a bad thing to do. He's down there and he's going to stay down there. Right. Apparently, the kid still never learned to swim, because if he could have learned to swim, he could have gone down a couple more inches and gotten the chain off his neck. But since mommy never taught little Jason how to swim, he's stuck there forever. (laughs) Or at least until part seven. Are there any final thoughts about Jason Lives? Well, you know, like I said, I feel like this was the one that I connected with. The first one I saw in full. The one that I really liked as a kid. The one that I feel has been the best we've seen so far. When you take the fact that it's not a scary movie out of it. Does that make this good? I don't think this is a good movie. I think it can be an enjoyable movie if you're out for it. But at the end of the day, when I think about like a good slasher horror movie, I'd still go with that first Halloween above any of these Friday the 13th. I feel like this series, with this one, seeing it at its best, we're still seeing a series that never reached the heights of some of the better ones. Top to bottom, start to finish, even though I didn't really care for the direction it went for, the comedy direction, I have to say, in its own little hour and a half, the movie does work. They set out to do it, and they did it. I'm not a big fan of Jason as the comic guy, but I felt it was one of the better entries because it did have a beginning, middle, and end. So is it a good movie? You're probably right. It's probably not a good movie, but I enjoyed watching this one more than I enjoyed watching the last one, especially in number three. So I didn't enjoy it as much as either of you because the comedy didn't work for me. This was Friday the 13th is done by Zephram Abrams and Zucker. (laughs) You know, I mean, there were too many 
outright jokes. Just yeah. too many. You've got the grave digger going, do they think I'm a fart head? And then you cut to the kids yelling, yes! I mean, it just didn't work for me on the horror level at all. I come to a Friday the 13th film looking for horror. And right. even if they succeed or don't succeed in scaring me, I'm not there to see pretty much Leslie Nielsen as Jason. And in that way, this movie didn't work for me, and it really weights it down in the series because of that. However, it is very well made. Mm -hmm. It has things that I really like. I've always liked the RV death scene, mm. where you've got the two kids going at it, and Jason cuts the power, and then the driving, and the girl flying back in the RV due to the brakes. I always thought that was a great death scene, very well done. So it has some great moments, and I do like the symmetry of returning Jason to the lake. I just didn't understand why that wasn't the plan from the very beginning. Mm, seems like the thing to do. I like a lot about this movie, but overall, when I walk away, I feel unsatisfied. Sure. It's kind of like if I'm eating fish. I don't like fish. And so even if it's the best fish in the world, it's only going to be okay. Well, I would feel that way about the whole series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we will reconvene for part seven. The New Blood. The New Blood. And Thank I'd, you. I'd like one last note on part six. Please. Originally, it was going to be called Jason Has Risen. You know, like Jesus. Oh. And they decided not to do that. Good choice. <laughs> and <laughs> wow. I, I want to tie in. I am currently wearing a shirt that has the letters WWJD on it, which stand for, Stuart, do you know this one? Uh, what would Jason do? But or it's Jesus supposed do. to be, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Of course, I got a big hockey mask on mine. So unfortunately, I don't know the answer. I'm guessing it would be something with a machete or perhaps crushing a head. He likes the crushing the head. But yes, Jason has risen. Wow. All right. Well, we'll catch up with Jason next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did, if you did, if you did, if you did. Now playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.